What in the world makes us so embarrassed about the gospel? For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Every believer can give a basic definition of what occurred on Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, or Easter. Christ carried the very cross he would be nailed to later that day on Calvary. He died an excruciating death for the sins of the world, was buried, and on the third day rose again, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We know that by heart because we know its deeply personal effect on us and the power it has to save the lost. But what would you say... If I asked you what the ascension is, would you say that it's a necessary step in God's salvific plan? In the next hour, pastor and Bible teacher John MacArthur will explain what the ascension is, why it matters so much, and how it's an active role in God's kingdom work and absolutely necessary in our lives today. If you will, turn to Philippians chapter 2. That is a very famous chapter, Philippians 2, that describes the spiritual realities of Christ's incarnation. Verse 7 of Philippians 2 says, He emptied Himself of His divine divine prerogatives. He did not cease to be God and took on the form of a slave and was made in the likeness of men. God, the second person of the Trinity, takes on human form. Verse 8, He was found in appearance as a man. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is a familiar portion of Scripture that describes the incarnation. God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, comes down, takes on human form, is developed in the womb of Mary, is born of Mary the Virgin, lives a perfectly obedient life all the way to the point of death, and willingly suffers death at the most ignominious level, death on a cross. And then we hear the Father's response, verse 9. For this reason also, because of His obedience, because of His willing humiliation, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." What was the Father's commentary on our Lord's death? It was His ascension. Did you notice something missing there? You have many components of the life of Christ in that brief passage. Verse 6 says that He existed in the form of God and was equal with God. That's His eternal deity. But then in verse 7, He emptied Himself, took the form of a slave, was made in the likeness of a man. That's the virgin birth. And then He is appearing as a man. That's His life. It is a sinless life, though humble. 
because He is obedient throughout that life, even to the point of death, and then you have His cross. But something is missing. There's no mention of the resurrection. God's response in verse 9 is to highly exalt Him and bestow on Him the name which is above every name, the name Lord, and then call on everyone to bow the knee to Him as sovereign. There's no mention of the resurrection in Philippians 2. The resurrection, I'm not diminishing it. How could you diminish it? It is not to be diminished. Because you can't even be a believer unless you acknowledge Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised Him from the dead. I'm not diminishing the resurrection, but what I am saying is the resurrection is not the final event in the life of Christ. It is the penultimate event and not the ultimate event. And the Father goes right to the ultimate divine commentary on the death of Christ. God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. He exalted Him above every other person. The ascension is the ultimate event in the life of Christ because glory is the ultimate goal in the life of Christ. The ascension is the most neglected event in the life of Christ, even though it is the culminating, monumental, consummate event. It has immense significance. Again in the sixteenth chapter of the Gospel of John and the fifth verse, that same night to those same disciples, He says, I'm going to Him who sent Me, and none of you ask Me where you're going. He's got His ascension in view, and they don't seem to have any interest in what happens to Him, so caught up are they in what happens to them. As critical as this was to the purpose of God, the plan of God, as glorious as it was, the culminating event, it is so little considered. We don't consider it like the disciples didn't because we're not so much thoughtful of what happened to Him. And so He reminded the disciples in John 16, 7, if you can't think about the ascension for what it means to Me, think about it for what it means to you. I tell you, He said, it is to your advantage that I go away. Maybe that will get your attention. If it isn't enough that you love Me and desire for Me to be glorified, it's for you as well. The ascension is the culminating reality in the life of our Lord on earth. Now what is its significance specifically? Many things could be considered. Let me give you just some things to think about. First of all, and we've already indicated this, the ascension marks the completion of our Lord's earthly work. The ascension marks the completion of our Lord's earthly work. And what was His earthly work? It was to come and provide a sacrifice for sin so that the people of God could be forgiven and gathered into eternal heaven. John 4.34, He said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent Me and to finish His work. I've come to finish the work. When did He finish the work? John 19.30, He says on the cross, it is finished. 
The work of providing the acceptable sacrifice is finished. In anticipation of having finished the work, you remember in John 17, verse 4, He prayed to the Father, I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work which You gave Me to do. He anticipates His accomplishment even before it happens. He came to do the work of the Father. Throughout His life, He said, I only do what You show Me to do, what You tell Me to do. I only follow the Father, His will only. Even in the garden, not My will, but Yours be done. The ascension says the work is finished. On the cross, the work of substitutionary sacrifice was finished, but there was still a resurrection, there was still forty days of instruction, and there was still an ascension. The ascension marks the ultimate end of the work that He did on earth. And now the Father can receive Him back to glory. The fact that, that He goes into glory is the Father's statement validating His work. What is the significance of the ascension? It marks the completion of our Lord's earthly work. And necessarily, secondly, it signals the end of His limitation. The, the end of His limitation, no longer does He set aside the prerogatives in using His power. No longer does He limit Himself. He prayed in John 17, 5, Father, give me back the glory I had with You before the world began. And that's exactly what He received when He went back. Give me back full use of My power, full prerogatives for all of My attributes. He returns to heaven. But there is a wondrous thing to contemplate. He goes back different than when He came. He goes back with a pre-incarnate glory for sure, but He goes back with a post-incarnate glory that is more. What do I mean by that? He came as pure deity. He came as Spirit. He came placed into the womb of Mary, and God began to develop a body, and He took on full and pure humanity, something He never possessed in all of eternity to that point. He became the perfect God-man, Tha-Tha-Anthropos, God-man. This is new. When He goes back to heaven, He goes back not just as God in a spirit, not just the invisible one, He goes back as the God-man. And why? because He is now the head of a whole redeemed humanity who are to be made like Him. And so God first makes Him a man, and this then makes all redeemed men like Him. He is restored to His limitless use of power. He is restored to His limited, limitless intimacy with God, but He is restored with scars and signs of suffering that remain on Him forever. He is a wounded lamb, John says when he sees Him in Revelation 5. It will always be that His wounds are visible and are tokens for the joy and the worship of all whom He redeemed by those wounds. There's a third thing to understand in the ascension. 
It establishes the universal and eternal worship of our Lord. The universal and eternal worship of our Lord. I read you earlier from Philippians chapter 2 that God exalted Him, bestowed on Him the name above every name. That's the name Lord. And at that name, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be universal worship of Christ forever. The Apostle Paul writes about this. It says that God raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. And then this, far above, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Through all ages, all persons, good, bad, indifferent, all human beings, all angels, holy angels, demons, Satan, all who can be named because they are persons come under the sovereign authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 110 says the Messiah will be seated by God at His right hand and God will make His enemies a footstool for His feet. This is bad news for Israel that God has made Him Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified, which is to say you are among the enemies who will be crushed under His feet. The seventh chapter of the book of Acts, Stephen has given a powerful message of redemptive history and he ends it, of course, by coming to the resurrection and the people are infuriated in verse 54. They're cut to the quick and began gnashing their teeth at Him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, verse 55 of Acts 7, He gazed intently into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Just in case anybody wondered, they saw Him go up. Stephen is given a vision, the only one like it in Scripture, of Christ standing at the right hand of God. Only Stephen sees it. So he gives testimony to it in the next verse, verse 56. He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, all the Jews who were there listening to Him knew who the Son of Man was. They knew Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man, a messianic title from Daniel 7. This infuriated them that Stephen would say, I'm looking into heaven, I'm seeing the throne of God, and there at His right hand is Jesus whom you crucified. He, the Son of Man, so furious were they, verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice, they covered their ears, rushed at Him with one impulse, drove Him out of the city and stoned Him to death. It was more than they could possibly handle. Jesus at the right hand of God in heaven? and they sealed their own eternal damnation. When you think about the ascension, God being so satisfied, so pleased that He lifts the Son, puts Him back on the throne, for us that's all glorious. 
But for His enemies, that's all devastating judgment, for His enemies will become His footstool, which is to say they will be crushed under His feet. There's another reality that we understand in the ascension. It is this. The ascension signaled our Lord's sending of the Holy Spirit. This now turns from what the ascension meant to Him to what the ascension means to us. It signaled the sending of the Holy Spirit. Back in that upper room on that night before our Lord was crucified, He said in John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, the Comfort of the Holy Spirit will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. I will send Him to you." Later on, as we read in Luke, He said, don't go anywhere out of Jerusalem until the promise of the Father is, is arrived, until He comes. In Acts 1-8, you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit has come on you, and then you'll be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest part of the world. I'm going back to heaven. This is good for you. This is to your advantage because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The point He's making is, look, you've had Me with you, but I'm not everywhere. In, in incarnated form. I can't be with you all the time, and now I'm leaving. But what is better for you than having Me with you some of the time is having the Holy Spirit in you all of the time, because He is as I am, God, and He will take up residence in you. The Holy Spirit will come to you. He will live in you. You will become His temple. He will empower you. He will enable you. He will comfort you. It's better to go because when I go and the Father validates My work, I will send the Holy Spirit. It only was a few days after He left. He said that in Acts 1, a few days. It was Acts 2. The Spirit came, the explosion of power, 3,000 people are converted, thousands more, thousands more, thousands more. And here we are many centuries later, and the power of the Holy Spirit has circled the globe again and again and again building the church. When you think of the, of the ascension in our terms, what does it mean to us? There's a second thing to consider. It marked the beginning of our Lord's preparation for our heavenly home. It marked the beginning of our Lord's preparation for our heavenly home. John, again, 14, the disciples are languishing over the idea that He's leaving. He says in chapter 14, verse 1, "'Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you to Myself.'" Uh, that, that's not going to be an unoccupied place. I'm going to go. I'm going to prepare it for you. I'm going to come back and get you and take you there. There's something else that happened for us. It marked the passing of gospel responsibility from the Lord to His followers. The Lord says, I'm going. Remember what I read you in Acts 1 about all that Jesus began? Jesus didn't finish the work of gospel ministry. He finished the work of redemption. He didn't finish the work of gospel ministry. He just began to do and teach, doing and teaching, that is, living out kingdom life and power and righteousness and teaching it. That goes on. He says, He began to do and teach it until the day when He was taken up to heaven. 
And once He was taken up to heaven, it had to be passed on to somebody else. So the Holy Spirit gave orders to the apostles whom He had chosen. So the baton goes from the Lord to the apostles, and the Holy Spirit brings the power and the calling to fruition in the case of the apostles. Well, what happens after the apostles? After the apostles come the believers in the church. Look at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, again, talking about the ascension in verse 8, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives. He, he, He took those that He had purchased at the cross into glory, and He gave gifts to men. That's a portion of Scripture wonderfully borrowed from Psalm 68. But it's talking about the ascension. Verse 9, He ascended. What does it mean? That He had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. You have the incarnation and then you have the ascension. He descended in verse 10, so that He could ascend above all the heavens so that He might fill all things. He goes back, back to the um, omnipresence, omnipotence and omniscience of His eternal being and fills all things. And then He gives, and what does He give? He gives apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. What happens in the ascension is our Lord passes the baton to the apostles and the New Testament prophets, and then they pass the baton to the evangelists and the pastors and teachers. And so it goes through history. Our Lord has gone back into glory, given us the ministry. There's one other benefit to us, profound advantage, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 says this, we have a great high priest. What does a high priest do? Intercede between us and God. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that's the ascension again, the first heaven, the second heaven, into the third heaven. This great high priest is none other than Jesus, the Son of God, and knowing that He is there and He has us in His heart and nothing will ever separate us from His love. Let us hold fast our confession. We do not have to ever fear that we will be forsaken or we will be lost. Hold fast your confession. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You say, well, wait a minute. He's our high priest. He goes into heaven for us. We can count on His faithfulness. But what about our sin? What about our weakness? No, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin, which is to say He knows temptation to its max because He never gave in. He gets that. He understands our weakness. So rather than fear that He might forsake us, let us draw near to that faithful high priest that sympathizing high priest with confidence to His throne of grace. We will always need grace. 
We will never be acceptable on our own. We go back again and again to the throne of grace, and what do we receive? Mercy and grace to help in time of need. He is our merciful, faithful, sympathetic high priest. And then there's a final reality when you think about the ascension, and that's exactly where we started in Acts chapter 1. The angels said, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched Him go into heaven. How did He go? In the clouds. How will He come? In the clouds. The ascension guarantees the Lord's return. The ascension guarantees the Lord's return. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'll be back to take you. Our Lord in the ascension is exalted. In the ascension His humiliation is ended. He has given back full glory that He had before He ever came into this world. He is there to receive universal and everlasting adoration. He's there preparing our eternal home. He's there acting as the head over His body, the church. He's passed to us ministry, but also given us the Spirit to empower us and the Scripture to direct us. He is for us constantly interceding on our behalf so that grace is always flowing to us, which will bring us to eternal glory. Through the years, the concern that I have had for the true understanding of the gospel has been a driving passion in my life. I don't think as a seminary student I really understood that I would spend so much of my life trying to get people who call themselves Christians to understand the gospel. Many years ago now, I wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. I followed it up with a book called The Gospel According to the Apostles. I followed that up with a book called The Gospel According to Paul. And now, the fourth book in that series, and I love this title, The Gospel According to God. And what is so unique about this book is that it's a study not of a New Testament book or a New Testament character. It's a study of the Old Testament chapter, Isaiah 53. You know, that's really the first gospel, and Matthew is the second, because 700 years before Christ came, Isaiah received from the Lord in the 53rd chapter a complete and carefully detailed outline of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, and also a complete explanation of His substitutionary atonement on the cross on behalf of sinners. In fact, there is no better explanation of the significance of the atonement of Christ than Isaiah 53. In some ways, it's more complete than any single New Testament passage and it was written 700 years before Christ came, which is proof positive that God is the author of the Old Testament. You will find that many of the phrases that you use, that your pastor uses, 
to explain the meaning of the death of Christ come not from the New Testament, but from Isaiah 53. This powerful treatment of the gospel, the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, will open up new understanding to anyone who reads it. In fact, I would go so far as to say every Christian should memorize that chapter because if you've memorized it, you have the gospel right on the tip of your tongue and you can give it from that chapter. We'd love to get this book in your hands. It will be a spiritual experience like none you've ever had.